Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects, and if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Amanda Bailey from Archibu. Amanda is an experienced journalist and was the editor-in-chief of Building Design from 2006 to 2013. After BD, Amanda launched Archibu, an events and content platform focused on inspiring architects to engage with the public in a richer way through their digital channels. Amanda has run the Archibu Awards every year since 2016, which now have 13 different categories, such as best use of social media, best written content, best use of video, and now the Activism Award for architects who are pressing for change on issues such as inequality, diversity, and climate crisis. So Amanda has seen a lot of the marketing and communication that architects are putting out there, and she has a lot of strong opinions on what we do well and what we don't do so well. In this episode, we discuss why people are losing interest in picture-perfect architecture porn and what opportunities that creates for brave architects who are willing to show a bit more depth and vulnerability in their communications. We looked at why you should set aside a portion of your marketing budget for activities and content that will help the general public understand the value of what architects do, even if it isn't directly targeted to potential clients. We talked about how architects can use writing, podcasts, and video to tell stories behind their projects in new and interesting ways. And finally, we spoke about how Amanda would allocate her marketing budget if she was starting an architecture firm today. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amanda Bailiu from Archibu. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Um, Before we get into Archibu and everything that you're doing at the moment, we've got listeners kind of all over the world, Australia, America, outside of the UK. So maybe just a little sort of background on on your career in the industry as well and and kind of where you came from before before starting Archibu. Well, I trained as a journalist um, back in the day of old media and local newspapers and all that kind of thing. And... I got into architecture, writing about architecture, really by chance. Uh, somebody said to me, in fact, a, a very famous architectural critic in the UK, who I sort of met at a party called Martin Pauly, said, well, what do you actually write about? And I went, oh, well, I, nothing, everything, really. And uh, he said, well, you need to specialise. And 
you know, we talked about architecture and I'd, I was really interested. I'd done architecture as a module at university. So I, I sort of thought, yeah, that, that would be probably quite a good idea. Not really knowing where it would lead, but just thinking it's a subject that touches so many things, planning, politics, obviously the architecture itself. But I was more interested in those things that affect architecture than the architecture, you know, per se. So I started at uh, building design as a as a reporter and to cut a really long, really long story short, you don't want my whole career. I ended up editing building design, which I left in uh, 20, at the end of 2013. And and it was at that point I set up Archibu, sort of having spent that Christmas sort of lying on my sofa thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Because I think print, you know, it's hard for people, you know, of your age, probably to remember what happened after sort of 2008, because kind of it was a collapse. It was a collapse of the economy, but it was a collapse of journalism as we kind of knew it and all those magazines and, and kind of ways of doing things. Obviously, everything had moved online. That was, that was sort of good. But also all the advertising had moved online. So the kind of whole business model was completely screwed. So I thought, well, obviously, I'm never going to get a job as a journalist again writing about architecture in a proper magazine. And I didn't really think I wanted to do that anyway, because the thing about architecture, which we don't, we're not really here to discuss, but, you know, particularly in that kind of news thing, but, but it goes in these kind of cycles. The same things kind of happen because it's a cyclical, you know, the economy dictates that, you know, the economy's good, buildings get built, economy's bad, buildings don't get built, architects lose their jobs, you know, it goes round, a new generation of architects comes up. And I thought, I really don't want to do another cycle. I don't want to listen to these stories. And, 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 and there's a lot in the UK about, you know, planning and, and buildings never getting built and things taking like, you know, I'm still reading stories that I'm thinking, oh my God, I used to write about that building and it's just, it's just finished. It's just opened. And I thought there's something else. There's something else. It came down to this thing of communication, not, not, not PR, not marketing, because I have absolutely no skills in those areas whatsoever. I'd be completely hopeless of both of them. But the sort of way that architects communicated, I felt, was changing and needed to change massively. And yeah. th- th- there has to be another way of doing it. And, and that's why, you know, I was interested in obviously just doing, a, having a platform and kind of investigating those ways that architects could learn and communicate. So the talks, I started with talks, tried to get people to come and talk to architects who weren't in architecture, because as you know, architects mainly listen to other architects talking. So I got in entrepreneurs and journalists and filmmakers and people who were doing other things. I felt architects really needed to learn about this world outside architecture. And again, you know, going back to 2014, it's people, it's a bit like after the pandemic. I mean, they've been so focused on saving their business they hadn't really got out and it was at that point I really began to look at what they were actually doing what the top 100 architects in in the UK how they were communicating and I mean it was shocking I mean it was shocking because because partly because of technology but if you looked at you know if you look at fashion or music or lots of other industries which architecture would say you know they sit more comfortably with some of those than they may do with the lawyers and the accountants, even though they're a profession, they think of themselves as artists. 
And you look at fashion and they were way ahead in terms of what they were doing on their website. And so I thought, actually, rather than just writing another piece and sticking it up on my website saying, this is all hopeless and get your act together, why not try and encourage them to do something? And that's, when the, and that's really when the award started. It's such an interesting solution to that problem of how to encourage architects to get more motivated to lift their marketing game. I think you've tapped into the psychology. They like <laughs> awards. They like recognition. So you had to kind of frame it as a more positive thing. Like, let's look at the people that are doing well and maybe you can look up to them and emulate yeah. some of the things that they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you know that you can't just endlessly bash people for not doing yep. well. I mean, that doesn't kind of work, does it? If you know, you know that yep. with your own, with, with, in life generally. Exactly, yep. And I think, you know, it wasn't a new, this wasn't a you know, new issue. I mean, when I was a journalist, uh, when I was on BD, you know, simple things like trying to find the address of an architect, you know, because you were going to actually see them and you wanted to know where they were. And it was kind of buried in the footer somewhere. I mean, you really had to like work hard. So, so, there was a, so there was that problem that I think, you know, everybody had because even though the web had been, you know, websites in the web had been around for years, it, it just wasn't something that architects had, it wasn't on their radar. And then when the recession hit, they weren't spending any money. And when we came out of the recession, they were like, okay, I mean, do I really want to go and blow a lot of money on a website? So, so things were patched together, if you like. So there were lots and lots of reasons why things were like they were. But I just felt that when you have a, a, a big time of crisis, you almost lose a generation. I mean, there's a lot of architects who just pack up and go like, I can't be bothered to do this anymore. And then a lot of architects, younger architects, set up because actually setting up in a recession is, you know, it's good mm. because you can get everything kind of sorted and it's, you can get cheap space and all those things. So, so there was suddenly this new lot that nobody, you know, you looked around and suddenly all these practices and kind of young, sort of very exciting architects starting up who absolutely knew what they were doing because they'd grown up with it. You know, they were walking around with a phone and they were using that basically to, to, to do everything. And I think this is why this kind of, you know, looking at the largest hundred UK practices was quite telling because they were the established practices who, you know, were run by people who kind of didn't really know this stuff. So suddenly you thought, actually, if you don't get your act together, you're going to be, you're not only kind of looking a bit boring because you know, we need some new blood in the industry, but you're looking a bit out of date because you don't know what the hell is going on and how you communicate with your clients, who, by the way, were also changing because, you know, the same thing that happens in the client world is happening in the architecture world. You get a lot of new young clients and they want, they want to communicate or they want to do business with the architects who are working on their phone and understand what the cloud means. So it, so even though, you, you know, you might say 2015 when I started looking at this stuff was a long way from 2008, but actually everything takes time. You know, everything takes time yeah. to kind of come through. So I just thought it, it was an exciting time and I just wanted to prove with the awards that things were changing and that there was actually a shift. There was a reason to give a, a company an award for social media. Yeah, absolutely. I guess coming back to sort of the some of the 
widespread issues that you were noticing in the industry in terms of how it was behind the curve in terms of some of these other creative disciplines? I mean, you touched on kind of dysfunctional websites and you also mentioned practices that were reluctant to spend money. They didn't really want to go out there into the world. Are those some of the major issues that you were kind of noticing or what sort of things you sort of looked at as characteristic of, okay, this is this is architects not putting themselves out there particularly well. <coughs> things that are still to this day, probably, <laughs> probably yeah. issues. Maybe these things that are sort of always in the DNA of the mistakes yeah. architects make in their marketing, I, I suppose. I don't even think it's that specific. I don't think it's a mistake that architects make with their marketing. I think it's that they don't think about marketing at all. And I think, you know, marketing is seen as something that you do through your built work when you've got a building. It's not something you continually do. And I think the problem is, which is a kind of separate one to that one, is that when they do have marketing, it's like that's the marketing department. You know, they practically shut the door and kind of bury their heads in their hands and hope something will happen. They don't really, really want to get involved. And this is the problem with how architects come across, particularly on social platforms. It's like they're not really very engaged. You know, Mm. they, I mean, I know there are some very skilled people like yourself, but you know, who help architects do it. And, and I really don't want to knock, um, people who are working for architects trying to do their social media, but I think it's really hard because there's never that genuine, there's never that real voice coming out. So so if you get, you know, that's why when architects do volunteer to do it and they're a name, it's so fantastic because you're getting that, you know, the, the, the authentic voice of that person rather than it being through the, the, the PR or the the consultant, who then probably has to have it checked by a couple of directors before it goes out anyway, because they're such control freaks. So actually, social media is a huge, hugely difficult for architects to sort of get behind. I mean, hence very few architects on TikTok. I mean, it's far too anarchic for them. You know, I mean, they all Mm. look at it and go, looks great, but my, it's so scary because it's all about control. So you sort of see what's going on. You know that architects love Instagram because it's all about the perfect image. But actually, you know, I think that even that is a problem now because it, the sort of vulnerability thing is now kind of come up as a more important thing to show that a bit, to show that it's not perfect. I think we've lost, we're sort of losing interest in that perfection a bit, hence the TikTok. Yeah. So I'm interested in describing this idea of the perfect image, the controlled online environment, the disengaged architect who's intimidated by the anarchic nature of some of this stuff. What's going on with that? Why do you think that that sort of vulnerable, authentic, engaged architect out there in the public is so critical to them putting themselves out there successfully? And then... What do you think is maybe some of the reasons that they struggle so much with engaging in those ways? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's this thing. You have to look at what Instagram, and Instagram could have been designed for architects, you know, and we know that when Instagram started, you know, that was, they loved architecture. And, and I think, you know, suddenly architects had a, a way of showing their work that they could 
you know, they could present their buildings and they didn't need to use a lot of words. I mean, obviously much more than Twitter, which never really took off with architects. But I think it's just a shift. I think it's something that's happened particularly in the last two years. I think we're just less enamoured with perfection. I think it's something that's happened with us. And so vulnerability gets better engagement because it's more relatable. We can relate to that. And I think this is the problem area for architects is that you can't relate to any of the stuff they put on their platform, you know, on their networks. And it just doesn't speak to people, speaks to other architects. And I think that's going back to TikTok, which actually I, you know, I'm not really... I'm in no position to speak about TikTok because I find it a bit scary too. I think that's why it's really interesting because it has this educational side to it that you can show people how things work, you know. And actually, this is the bit that architects are missing. Architects have to tell the rest of the world what it is they're about, what they do, Mm. why we need them. It really struck me or sort of still makes me think, you know, we all presume we need a doctor at some point and a lawyer and an accountant but we never think I mean you say to people you you'll need an architect and they go oh don't definitely not I, you know don't need an architect you're thinking well why actually it's not their fault it's just that the architecture world hasn't explained what it is they do because they're really obsessed with this perfection thing and speaking to each other so it's understanding the value of what an architect does and why you might need one and, and how it works and all of that sort of stuff. So with that perfect image for other architects, we're not really doing a very good job of conveying that, right? Well, I think I think there's obviously there's always something about the beautiful image on Instagram and we can all kind of like it and so on, but it's not that engaging. I mean, that's why I think film is it's the one area where, I mean, it's a very under use medium to explain architecture it has the potential to be brilliant but you know i have a film category and there are some you know we we get some great entries and it's always a really it's always a really interesting one to judge but i mean there was a film of a, a, a kind of a very a, a well-known architect in the uk and it was sort of about you know how he works and it was set in his he, you know, he's out in the country and it was beautifully filmed by somebody that you have interviewed. Um, and yeah. it, it all looked lovely. And, you know, the rain came down and the trees rustled and he sort of posed elegantly on a tree trunk. And I just watched it and I thought, yeah, this is a lovely film. There's a fault, it's faultless kind of thing. But I just wanted to know what happens when the sort of, timber sort of wigwam structure that he designed and talked about eloquently fails to stand up. You know, I wanted to know how he got to the local shops. He seemed to be in the middle of a wood. I mean, I wanted to see him having a bad day. You know, that's what I mean about vulnerability. You know, architects have a, I mean, you know, you don't want to be an architect. It's a, it's such, I mean, amazed anything ever gets built. The hurdles that the, you know, and everybody says, oh, but nobody's interested in the planning and the, the rows over this and the budget costs. Well, sort of they're dramas, aren't they? They're all human dramas about, you know, am I going to get it? Is it going to work? Am I, is the client going to cut the budget and so on? I mean, in a way, I mean, what architects tend to do is they, they sort of wrap everything in this exotic mist and present it. 
And actually, the story is so much messier than that. And I think we like mess. We actually like it in the UK. There's very few programs about architecture with grand designs, which does do mess big time. Yeah, definitely. And does. I think that's that is that is one of its appeals. But when they do some of these big projects, you know, like big infrastructure projects, you know, the Queen Elizabeth Line that's recently opened, the Jubilee Line, they do these really amazing series about you know the, the engineers and the drilling and the this and that, and people are absolutely fascinated. And I think. The stories behind buildings are untold, you know, how things get built. I don't mean the, the sort of engineering structure, but, but the kind of decisions that have to be made and the reasons things don't turn out according to plan. And, and I think if we had more of that, then A, I think society might be more forgiving of architects generally and not just say, oh, it's the bloody architect's fault, because it's a struggle. You know, it's a huge struggle. And the, prob- the problem is that architects want to only talk about the finished building with no people in it, no normal people in it. Yeah. You know, it's the wallpaper set with the kind of models lying around and yeah. the perfect Italian furniture. That's not real life. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, getting into kind of the mindset of why you would feel that that more perfect controlled output uh, or window to the world is the right move would be, well... I guess you know if my pro- if my projects look perfect and look stunning, they're they're going to get they're going to get featured in magazines and they're going to get recognised and I might win some awards. And you know if we've got some really seductive images, then people are going to be drawn to those. They're going to get a lot of likes on Instagram, and this all feels like really good stuff, right? Like that's the kind of uh, results, or or you would be trying you would associate with that that then leading to the right type of client or the client that I want. There's also another mindset that comes in, which is that, you know, I, I, I'm sort of marketing this stuff for other architects, but in a way I'm kind of marketing it to people that appreciate perfect design. And that's kind of the client that I want. So there's all these sort of, I guess, like shortcuts that happen that would lead you towards that sort of more perfectionist controlled marketing style where it is all about the final image and the final product. I guess we're trying to debunk, debunk that a little bit because it's, so, it's super counterintuitive that things like mess and negativity and vulnerability and disasters with the, with the council and, you know, some weird conditions on site that we didn't expect that cost another 50,000 pounds, you know, all that sort of stuff. How could you maybe help us connect that to the idea of it's going to make people come to me and want to work with me? Is it simply just because it's engaging? And if you're not engaging, there's no people anyway. Is that sort of where you're coming from with it, Amanda? Or is there, is there a reason <clears throat> that that actually could have a, a positive outcome for an architect to allow that mess and those, and those little imperfections to kind of creep in? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's about one of your questions, I think, that you sent over, which I was thinking about is, you know, why, who is all this marketing for? Is it just for clients? Is it all about getting clients? And I guess at the end of the day, if you're spending a lot of money on it, it sort of is, but there's a bigger piece here, which I think is about how architects are seen in society and how Mm. they're valued. And architects feel that they're not at the top table anymore. They're not, you know, they're not noticed. They're not given a voice. They don't have a voice. And part of that, I think it's because their communication is so focused to just winning work rather than telling a broader story about what it is they do. And so my answer would be, you need to do both. 
obviously you need to do the, the proper marketing, but you also need to do something that's a bit more authentic and relatable. And you can do that, you know, you can, you can do that through something like TikTok or you can, you can just be passionate in the way you talk about your certain values of the practice, whether it's to do with climate emergency or diversity, but you can have a voice that people can relate to and they can pull in others outside architecture. So I think it's, it's a twin thing. I think you've got to do your marketing for your clients, but you've also got to say, what else can we do to make sure that architecture is sort of visible and it's, it's getting into conversations. I mean, that's broadly what I'm pushing for. Yeah. A more kind of open conversation, a more honest conversation. You don't have to start communicating all the kind of headaches that you're having going through a project. But I just, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, what we were talking about is, is this idea of perfection and just slightly messing with that. Yeah, know. absolutely. You're saying perfection is just not as interesting anymore, right? That's a pretty simple takeaway. <laughs> that's, that's it. You know, let's just go behind yeah. that a bit. You know, do whatever you feel comfortable with. Obviously, there are huge areas that we know you cannot go. Clients don't want it. Nobody wants to know about kind of huge problems on site, you know, endlessly on, on sort of Instagram reels or whatever. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm just yeah. saying let's move away from this perfect image that every director has signed off that people are going to look, look at for, what, three seconds? Yeah. Do you, do you think that looking at kind of architectural journalism, uh, do you think in some ways because the the way that architecture is kind of judged and who it's kind of judged by and promoted by, like the magazines that still are, they're still alive and still you know kicking, and and I think every architect's goal is to see their work kind of published in as prestigious a location as they can possibly get it. The standards for perfectionism in these publications are exceptionally high, and I think as a consultant. When, when a client has a goal to, to, to sort of appear there, I'm often getting them to stretch that budget and stretch that, you know, photographer choice and that perfection and that staging and styling to, to give them a fighting chance of appearing in one, in one of these publications. And so sometimes I think that it's not even necessarily the architect that's uh, necessarily looking for it. It's, it's kind of what's expected of them to make the cut in, in some ways. And so there's sort of outside pressure on architects as well to sort of live up to those perfect standards of image for their work, uh, as well as themselves wanting to do that. But just interested in your kind of thoughts on that, if, if maybe the architecture media has a bit of a role to play in that as well. And I know this is a big discussion that goes on all the time, but <clears throat> what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, you know, it's, it's, if you're going to get your building featured in a in a magazine, if there are any, ma- I mean, the few magazines that are left, obviously the few you're that gonna, are left, yeah, yeah. But you know, you've got the, the design thing, which I suppose is about beautiful image. It's sort of architectural porn, really. Yeah, you know, it's about it's about clicks and likes and and numbers and and that sort of thing. And there is obviously a, a huge business case for that. You know, getting getting lots of people on your platform and and and. And architects want to look at beautiful images, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think it's, you know, what I'm trying to say, it's not either or. We need everything. Yeah. You know, we need beautiful, beautifully shot buildings by some of the best photographers in books and, and magazines and, and online and, and so on. But we also need people to be talking about architecture 
in, in, in a broader context in terms of city making and how it's difficult and the decisions and, you know, because, because I think, again, pandemic, post-pandemic, you know, we learn that actually the world, kind of everything join, has got to join up more to solve things, you know. So this idea that the architect is this sort of godlike figure that creates a building and that kind of solves that problem. We, we always knew it wasn't true, but it's even less true now because we know that the only way we're going to solve anything is by everybody talking and everybody being at the table. And I think some of that needs to come through in the communication. So I suppose, you know, architecture magazines, if I'm really honest, I find them a bit boring because it's such a, mm. it's, it's through such a sort of narrow lens. You know, I like the big, I like the big picture. I like to know, yeah. you know, what the political setup was there and how the money came and how that grant, you know, that's really interesting. And I think it's also interesting. It kind of tells people how things get done, you know, the different pressures that are on, on clients and architects and all the consultants. And that to me is a kind of more holistic view of, you know, what's going on than just a perfect building in a magazine. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. No, it's interesting. And, and you use that term really interestingly, the architecture porn as well. So, you know, I think there's a few levels that architects get get to or may try to get to. They they start off with just the basic word of mouth sort of way that they grow and, and keep their business going. The lucky few, I'm not sure what percent of the, of the practices out there manage to get into the architecture porn space. <laughs> they join the architecture porn industry. And they they go for the magazines and Instagram and they see success through that, also awards as well. And then it's really unclear to the industry, I think, still what options might exist for them outside of those. What can you do apart from that? You know, take beautiful photos and do all that sort of routine. But what else is there? And I think that's where kind of the Archibald Awards kind of come into the picture because you, it feels to me like trying to shine some light on all of these other sort of approaches is kind of a big part of what the the program's about. So what a few of those sort of other categories might look like. What are, what are some of the other things that kind of get outside of that perfectionist architecture porn space that could be maybe examples of what, what else, what other options there might be for communication? Well, I mean, looking at the categories, there's obviously podcast. Which Not is many of those really in the architecture space. <laughs> but well, ones you that there say are. that. You say that. Actually, I remember telling somebody, you know, a, a friend that I was like adding podcasts and, to as a category, and they went, "But that's really weird because how can you do a podcast about architecture?" Yeah. And I completely disagree. I think actually, done well, it's almost sort of perfect because it's like that. It's a bit like war reporting. So, you know, you can listen to a broadcast, a radio broadcast about, you know, something really dreadful happening on the other side of the world. Because it's just audio, somehow you are really engaged. And when it's just, it's mm. on, you know, you're watching it on the news, it's like images, voice, you know, lots of things. You're not so engaged. I think 
done well, podcast architecture is a fantastic combination. Not quite there yet, you know, but I think there's, there's also, we're going back to this thing about education and talking about what do these architects do. I think there's so many areas podcast really works. And obviously, as we know, the podcast sort of line has gone up and up. I mean, people love it because they can do other things at the same time as listening to a yeah. podcast, which is not the same with film. You know, you can't like cycle or walk or run or ev- watching a film. Obviously, there's we haven't talked about, well, we have talked about writing in terms of magazines, but we mm. haven't talked about architects writing on their website. Doing their own writing, yep, so, yep. Yeah, which is which is a category that actually is sort of getting better. I mean, that's really weird because you think, oh, nobody's going to bother with writing because they're just doing Instagram and they're just doing that. But I think what's happened is architects have started, the penny has finally dropped, it's dropping, that they don't know how to write. Mainly they don't know how to write. Mm-hmm. And so they're hiring writers to come in and either teach them or do the writing for them. So the quality is just completely different because you know, there's nothing worse than a project description on an architect's website that is like so full of jargon and so long and and kind of you lose the will to go on after a bit. And you now find that that's all been sharpened up. And I mean, I may have had a small role in this, but I used to bang on about writing a lot, obviously, because it's something I did professionally for years. So it used to, again, it was a bit like the website thing. I think, oh no, just just cut this in half and use a full, some full stops and paragraph breaks, and it would be fine. So that's really changed. So writing, we've also got a category for storytelling, which mm. is, a, is, is an interesting category that is really not so much aimed at the architects. It's aimed at all those people who help architects and help developers communicate what a place is going to be like before it's built. So these, you know, we're talking about the models and the fly-throughs and the, you know, all those kind of things. Because I think that there's been a lot of reliance on, you know, the architectural visualization. And as we know, they they don't really tell the whole truth about what the place is going to be like. So I think there's, it's up to the industry to to work really hard because they, they've got to win. You know, this is part of the sort of planning process. This is part of, you've got to win the public's trust to say, actually what I'm proposing is going to be like this, not some idealized image that you've, you know, where it's kind of permanently sunny and it never rains. And yeah, we have an innovation category this year, which isn't about innovation as you probably, or most architects understand it because they use that word probably more than any other on their website. We are innovative. And you just go, why are you innovative? I mean, what, tell me, why are you innovative? So it's really about architects who can demonstrate how they've spotted a problem, either an internal problem in how they work, or they've solved a problem for a client. They may have used technology, but I'm, I'm sort of slightly bored of this technology thing. You know, oh, we use this bit of software. Oh, we did a, you know, we use, uh, you know, VR. You know, it's, it's got a bit yeah. like stale, that stuff. It's actually innovation is not, it's about the people. Hmm. It's how they use it. It's just a tool. Technology is just a tool. I mean, I think we've all been, I've probably been guilty of this, been obsessed with technology and thinking it's kind of, it's going to solve everything. It's actually going to solve anything. It comes back to the people. And if you've got a good team who are thinking about a problem and how to solve it. So that's innovation. When you're thinking about your communication strategy, I guess what you have to do is think, how can I reach as many people as possible? And how am I going to do that? We need 
we need to use everything at our disposal to do that. So all these categories are sort of trying, you know, searching for ways to trying to encourage architects to think of all these different ways that they are telling their story and the story about their buildings. This idea of reaching reaching everybody or as many people as possible, it sometimes contradicts with this message that I think architects have got from marketing people. I think we're kind of marketing communications people to blame for this a little bit, but we've we've told we've told the industry sort of so many times and that you know you don't want to be marketing to everybody you don't need to market to everyone or it, it's it's actually about being really really selective and who is your brand for and only and only really speaking to the minimum sort of viable perfect group of people and that message really i think resonated with architects and they went like oh yeah perfect cuz that also excuses me not doing very much marketing that's convenient yeah. but but you know, that, that means that I shouldn't really be thinking about trying to get out there to everybody. Of course, we're separating this idea of getting clients versus improving the relevance of the profession and engaging with the public. And I'm, I'm definitely aware of this. There might be two different styles depending on whether you're doing one of those or the other. But, but I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that idea of like, why, why is it important to, to kind of reach out to everybody? It, and if it's just, you know, to engage <coughs> with the public, then that's, that's okay. But, but I guess in terms of a business owner, a practice owner trying to sort of get their head around that idea of, you know, why do I need to sort of span across multiple kind of media types and, and do a variety of different things? Why does that kind of matter to me? Why should I invest my energy into that? I think you you could look at it as 80% of my budget, my marketing budget is going to clients I need to reach. So whether you do private houses or, you know, what whatever you, you're kind of um, targeted at, and then you say 20% of it is for something completely different because this is about mm. the long-term future of architecture, really. I mean, you could almost mm. sort of write it off and say, you know, it's not going to make money from this. It's not going to be a return on my investment, but this is an investment in kind of the future of, you know, of architecture and and. If we don't do it in a way where we're putting another nail in the kind of coffin of the profession, because as I said earlier, you know, why don't people, why doesn't the public understand, why do they have this view of architecture as something other that's not essential? Why are clients reluctant a lot, you know, to use architects? I mean, we, I can't remember what the figure is, and that figure will be out of date. But globally, the number of buildings that are designed by architects, by actual architects, is something like 5%. And I would say that it's the architect's fault. And they need to go back and sort of ask what this core skill is that makes them, uh, makes them different. And they need to kind of talk about that and demonstrate it. You know, and they need to just do that widely and get people yeah. engaged. I mean, I'm going to give you an example because we, and they're not architects, but we, you know, we, if you're talking about how to communicate, we have to talk about modern house. Hmm. Obviously, they're estate agents, really, and they're selling beautiful modern buildings. But, you know, what they've, I think they've just turned on a lot of people because people mention modern house to me all the time. You know, they go, oh, yeah. I love, you know, architecture, modern architecture. I, I follow modern house. And so what's essentially an estate agent has turned itself into this brand 
that has yeah. also turned people on to this idea that they might want to live in a modern house. Yeah. And they're all buildings built in the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, a lot of the property they have is of that, that sort of generation. A great places to live. And actually, Modern House, the first year of the awards, they won three out of the seven categories. I only had seven categories, <laughs> and I think they won three of them. And I think, and they won't enter anymore because the architects got really pissed off because they won everything and they weren't architects. Yeah. It's this thing that we haven't talked about, which is brand, you know, which is you're very comfortable with the modern house brand. And architects <clears throat> don't really think of themselves as brands, as we know. It's a kind of another dirty word they'd rather not really think about too much because it's very commercial. But in the end, people buy from people they know and trust based on the relationship that they've cultivated over time. So as an architect, you're going out and you're saying, get in a relationship with me to do your house or to whatever the project is. They don't really know much about you. And I, you know, mm. go back to this thing of the, this is really important. You're locked in this relationship with this architect for quite a long time. I mean, you know, less if it's a, if it's a domestic project, but a long time. So what is, where is, how do they know that relationship's going to work? Well, one sure way they might do is if they know that your brand is solid and your yeah. values, all those values, forget website. I mean, website's part of it, but the brand runs out through how you speak and how you answer the phone and whether you're, you know, you put something really annoying on your website, which I have to mention, which is, you know, you cannot find a human being to contact hello at the name of the practice. Well, nobody's mm. called hello. I want to know that there's somebody there who will reply to me who's called John, you know, yep. who, who has a name. So I can then ring him up and say, oh, I emailed you about that. But they have this kind of barrier. So brand is how you speak to people, how you, what you say on your social accounts and how you talk and your language on your website and everything you do, all your touch points, that's your brand. And, and if I was going to commission an architect to do my house, I would really, really interrogate the brand. I wouldn't just look yeah. at their Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, when you're talking about architects writing and, and getting, getting so much better because they've started hiring people to do it for them. That's an interesting observation. And uh, I think that probably applies across a few different areas of marketing uh, and content creation that, you know, once, once people actually start making a real commitment to doing it and in, in, in investing resources in working with somebody who's more talented at that thing than they are, that they actually start seeing much better results from it. And I guess like, do you kind of give architects permission to not do this stuff themselves? Do you think it's, do you, do you lean towards it's better to, better to work with a pro if you're able to? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not a fan of DIY at all, you know, of oh, doing your own website, doing love it. it. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm really not because, I mean, I wouldn't try and design a house. I mean, it's just kind of ludicrous, you know, it's absolutely ludicrous. I, I do think this whole thing of, you know, being a, a, design, a website designer for an architect is obviously quite difficult because architects are, are themselves designers and they want to sort of dabble in it as well. But I think that what you've got to do as an architect is you've got to get your, your designer in, you've got to have your, you know, your, your kind of, all your conversations about what you want from the website and let them get on with it. 
do not get involved. Just let them do it. I mean, get involved, but, but don't like pour over it. Of course, if you just started, you've got no money and you know how to design a website, of course, fine. Yeah. You know, but the moment you've got some projects to show and you need to set out your stall a bit, you know, when you've got very little content, I mean, actually a simple website, I think it's kind of fine and you don't need a super sort of whiz bang website from the, from the get go, but you do need the designer, I think to establish your identity and that identity, we go back to the brand thing, you know, how do you want to come across? Because, you know, a number of websites that I can think of, they kind of mirror the brand or the practice, everything joins up. And it all fits nice. Yeah. It all fits. And that is a, that is a, that is a particular way of thinking about graphics and colors and, and fonts and uh, so on, you know, you, you, you need somebody to be really thinking about that. I guess like in terms of, I'm, I'm always interested in thinking about, you know, what to kind of take away or prioritize from some of this information. And I'm sort of thinking about a practice that's, you know, they've not, they've not just started up, you know, they're not, they're not sort of running on, on, on no budget whatsoever, but a practice that's maybe four or five years in, they've really just seen their kind of first round of good projects sort of finish up and they're, they're starting to settle in a little bit more. And let's say they've got 30,000 pounds to spend or something like that. What you would prioritize in, in, in a limited budget if you, if you had to pick a few things. So, I mean, you've kind of got to start with a website, haven't you? Because mm. it's, I mean, in terms of, you know, you're, you're putting your brand down. It's, yeah. it's a bit, oh, you know, we can all say, oh, actually, you only need Instagram now. I mean, I think what clients do is that they, I mean, I've talked to a few clients and they go, yeah, yeah, I have a quick look at their Instagram and if I like them, I go onto their website. Yeah. Because you can do more. You can tear, I mean, you know, all you're seeing is a couple of images on, you know, you can look at the Instagram, that's fine. <clears throat> but then they go onto the website. So when I run something called the architect pitch, which architects get to pitch for work and they get three minutes. And when we're doing a shortlist for the pitch, so we get about 40 to 50 architects applying and we only have seven places to pitch. And we always look at the website because, you know, when we're shortlisting and if the website is no good, they don't get to pitch. We yeah. kind of think, why would you be any good as an architect? You haven't even got your website together. <laughs> yep. It's a sort of unprofessional yeah. I mean, I don't, if it said actually website under construction and they you know, they just started out, that's fair enough. But if it's just sloppy, it's just, it's bad messaging, really bad, yeah. bad optics, as they say. So you, I'd probably start with the, I'd probably start with the website because that's going to drain the most money. Mm. And then I'd look very carefully at my imagery, you know, because mm. however brilliant your website designer is, they're going to have a really tough time if, if you've sent out the intern with their phone to take some pictures of your buildings. Yeah. So if it's a sort of wonky picture or there's sort of, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's, the, it's the all about how you're coming across. I don't care if that website has only got one building or hasn't got any buildings, just projects. I just want the communication to be excellent. I want the imagery to be excellent. I want the, the user experience so that I know I can find them and who they are. And I really, really like knowing who they are, which is something architects are doing more, but I want little bios about them. I don't, you know, I don't need like, I love cycling at weekends and all that stuff. I just need to know a little bit about them. Yeah. 
you know, the people, that we go back to this thing about people. And actually that has changed. You know, you, you, you didn't you used to get the directors and nobody yeah. else really mattered. And now you get everybody. And that's quite nice. It's quite, yeah. you know, those group pictures. I like all that. They're humans. So you ask what the other things are. I mean, I think, I mean, we've not talked about spending money on search. I know an architect who built a quite a successful practice, actually very successful practice. He spent a lot of money on search, making sure that when you entered the um, words Clerkenwell and housing, their name came up first. Yep. So talking yeah. about SEO type stuff specifically, right? The SEO on the website. Yeah, which I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, it's not something I kind of know a lot about and we don't have an award for it and anything like that, but yeah. it's not something architects really know about because I think that if it's not earned, it's cheating. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is a bit of that with SEO. Oh, there's Obviously. a lot of that. Well, they don't think they think about too much about SEO, but yeah, you're right. As a general principle, earned is in a magazine or on a website or winning an award. Everything else is not earned, right? So like, yeah. or word of mouth is earned, but everything else, right? So yeah, being number one on Google, not earned through through SEO. Advertising, not earned. You know, yeah. <laughs> go down the list. These things, yeah. you're not actually but, earning it. But, Writing a blog post that's really helpful and that person calls you and says they want to work with you not earned, not in the conventional sense. So I think that's an interesting exactly. thing to pick up on. But, but, but I agree because, you know, this thing of earned, not earned, you know, this, sorry, going back to the website, because I think that's important. So I think that's something I, I definitely want to try and say is that you've done your website, it looks great, and you just go, job done. Now let's get back to the real job of, you know, getting, designing buildings. No, that's not where the job's not done mm. at all. Somebody's got to look after that website. Somebody's got to upload new content. And if you say you've got a blog about, you know, what we're up to and you go on and it says May 2019, you're thinking, you know, have they called under a rock? Yeah. What's going on? I think there's that. They don't, they don't wrap into that cost. You need somebody to be on that website and yeah. you need to be, and of course, you then need to get onto your social because however brilliant your website is, nobody's going to find it unless you're doing social. Yep. And so the two things have to go together. So, you know, you put your, your money into your website and then you say, I'm going to have somebody who's two days a week if you can't afford somebody full time and they're going to be doing posts and they're gonna, there's going to be a new bit of content. So you literally have to have a plan. Yeah. And, and you know, all the, big, all the practices obviously have that. If they have PR... They have masses of that going on all the time. And then every now and then you have to do something a bit different, like upload a video, you know, yes. or yeah. just, just surprise people. Because I think we all get a game, we get a bit, you know, it's this boredom fact, this kind of scrolling thing. It's like, oh yeah, that one, I've seen that, I've seen that. So what's going to wake people up? So I guess my, my, my spend is on the website, but you keep somebody, you know, money to run it and then do your social yeah, absolutely. You mentioned getting somebody one or two days a week. I think that that's a real inflection point for a lot of practices, getting more into that managing, delegating, outsource role with marketing rather than the person actually trying to do it yourself, which is not for everyone and it's not for every architect. At a certain point, if you don't get somebody else to help you with it, you're not going to do it and you're not really going to be very successful in your marketing, right? Or you're going to be extremely limited. Everyone feels comfortable getting an architectural photographer, which is still getting someone else to help you, but they don't think about other types of help necessarily or make that same sort of commitment. So, you know, spend 15,000 pounds a year on, on, on photography, but don't spend uh, a penny on 
uh, on somebody to help you with writing or uh, any of these other kind of exactly. areas. Yeah. But where do they think, you know, having spent all this money on photography, I mean, actually, I'll give you a really good example. I mean, I had an amazing film. This was about three or four years ago. I mean, a beautiful film. It won, but you can't find it anywhere. Yeah. They needed somebody to say, hey, I mean, you know, break this down. I mean, this was before reels and so on. So that's obviously got easier. But why should an architect know that, you know, how long a reel can be? I mean, I don't expect them to know that. Mm. But you do expect them to think, hold on, just spent 10000 on a film, really good marketing for us. Why don't we just spend another whatever in getting yeah. somebody to make promote this? Yeah. It didn't yeah. even have the website of the name of the practice on the film. I mean, it was a complete, in terms of marketing, it was a complete waste of money. I don't think they did it for marketing. I think they did it because they wanted a film, which is fine. You always think that was a bit of a waste, wasted opportunity. I mean, they won an award. That was good. Amanda, we are, we're coming up to that really over the time that we've got, but very interesting just to hear your point of view on these things. And I think also, you're not a you're not a marketing consultant. You're not a PR person, so you're not just talking your own book. And I think it's but it's interesting to hear some of the things that you advocate for and suggest for architects to take more seriously and prioritize. And thank you so much for for those ideas. Great, thanks, Dave, for having me. And glad we managed to make this one work. We did. But before we go, you've got the entries opening up pretty soon. Yeah. So the the awards actually launched yesterday. Just Google Archibu Awards and you will find them. And there are 13 categories that you can enter. And they're mainly open to architects um, and engineers and other consultants, as long as the main subject is architecture. We've got three new categories this year. We've got the Innovation Award, We've got the um, Best Clip Award. We've got Best Digital Community Engagement, which we didn't have time to talk about. Mm. Uh, we've got the Award for Storytelling, which I mentioned, User Experience, Social Media, Best Overall, Best Consultants, Best Written Content, Best Visual Design, Best Use of Video, and Best Podcast. And then we have something called Activism Award, which is for a group or individual that's sort of addressing challenges from issues of inequality and diversity to homelessness. So actually architects or others that are doing sort of pressing for change, for social change. And we get entries from all over the world. We do have a physical judging session, but obviously our judges can join us virtually as well, yeah. as you are going to be doing. Thank you so much for coming on, Amanda. Great. Thanks, Dave. That was my conversation with Amanda Bailey from Archibu. If you'd like to learn more about Archibu and enter your practice into the 2022 Archibu Awards, you can visit archibuawards.com or follow them on Instagram at Archibu Live. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.